Welcome to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. Welcome back, devotees. We're back with Augie. Yeah. Hi. Wow, that's weird. <laughs> Hi. Is that what I meant? <laughs> Hello, internet. We're back. <laughs> we're slap happy and a little oh, and God. very whiskeyful, so... <laughs> oh yes, yes, slightly buzzed. I wouldn't say enough that uh, I can't <laughs> function, but definitely enough to talk about all the wonderful things I have. To yes, talk about. you're doing like a hodgepodge of medical history, and I am excited. Yes, <sighs> yes, I I am also excited because I have been spending the last two days working on researching all of this stuff, and it has just consumed my life. <laughs> then I watched Game of Thrones on top of all of it, and it made it so much worse. <laughs> oh, I recorded for probably two plus hours with Kate during Game of Thrones. Wow. So I th- we finished, and by the time I started watching Game of Thrones, I believe it was like either 11 or 11.30. <laughs> and then I was up till like 1, 1.30. And then I was just jacked. Oh, I was yeah. so full of a yeah. I caught up on all the episodes of this season so far last night, and I did not want to sleep because one, I was crying my eyes out, and two, I was just like, I want more mm-hmm. dragons! <laughs> more dragons! More dragons! <laughs> yeah, I have um, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts, and because I always tend to watch it by myself, I started a text, like just a group text where I would just share my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And they're just literal word vomit in a text message. But then you scroll, <laughs> like I showed someone, they're like, this is a novel. And I was like, well, yeah, it's like an hour and a half. And she's just like. <laughs> it's a full length movie every episode. But it's just all my thoughts. So you could literally watch the episode and just scroll through and see my thoughts lined up. Mm. Let's talk about cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> And I somehow accidentally wrote all of these notes like I was writing one of my movie review podcast scripts. Yes. So I like wrote jokes in here and I'm not going to be offended if you don't laugh, but I might be a little bit. So I I think we're already at that level. Like we came in (laughs) slap happy hot and we've added things to that and it's just going to. It's true. It's true. So it's only going to get better. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll just imagine Zach Bagans is saying them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then they'll be funny. They'll be, they'll, they're going to be funny. And then they're just going to be funnier because you're just going to imagine him and his, <laughs> this is why we are here. <laughs> Could it be that this is this and this word means this thing? No, Zach, it's not. No, you just hear your, <laughs> okay. you hear your inner fear, Zach. That's what this is. <laughs> You were the ghost all along. <laughs> it's really a sixth sense. He's just the ghost. <laughs> He's been haunting himself. That's <laughs> the season finale. And it's really just been Aaron the whole time. <laughs> We've all been Aaron's hallucinations. <laughs> okay, we need oh to do another God. like cut to it because we've just added more to the us randomly sorry, talking so about sorry. ghosts. <laughs> I oh keep bringing God. it around. This is okay. my fault. I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. Okay, right here is where we're doing the thing. <laughs> I'm talking about weird medical history and stuff. I'm going to be talking about like three really random topics that 
I don't understand why, but all somehow made sense with each other. I, I don't know. Um, so I'm going to be talking about cannibalism. I'm going to be talking about body farms and I'm going to be talking about how they treated sexually transmitted diseases in the 18th and 19th centuries. Yay! So I'm going to, I'm going to recommend now that if anybody is squeamish or not fond of, <laughs> making horrible, disgusting jokes and, and terrible things that you not listen to this episode because I'm about to get pretty darn graphic and I'm sorry and I'm not sorry. Wait, why are they listening to this podcast then? Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm not under the impression that anyone listening is like that, but I just wanted to put that out there because you never know who's listening to this episode for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> It's your first time. Welcome. This is a Ghost Adventures podcast. <laughs> Don't tempt that. I've thought about it a lot. More than I should like to admit. Well, when I quit my part-time job and full podcast full-time, it's happening. Oh We're making God. that podcast. It's just us laughing for an hour and a half at our dumb Zach Bagans jokes. Which, mind you, has already been a half hour. It's true. Yes. Okay. Uh, cannibalism is a very real thing. <laughs> yes. But what about the rest of us that don't want to eat grandma? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> that, that was a reference to a grammar joke, too, and I wasn't sure if you were going to find it funny. <laughs> it's that joke about where you put commas in a sentence, you know, the whole, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you got that. Okay. I don't even remember where I first heard about this whole phenomenon, but I remember watching this video on YouTube one day, and I came across the knowledge that someone somewhere had tasted human flesh so that there would be a scientific definition of it. Science. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's just such a a thing to do. It's well, actually, words <laughs> stupidly. In my, I read the article that was discussing the nutritional value of a human body. I'm gonna talk okay, about good. that. <laughs> I found that one. It's good. So yeah, <laughs> cannibalism is a thing. But I think back when that guy was doing that for science, it was a little bit more taboo than it is now. But you know. I- also, it's not because given the research that I, I think go ahead. we we haven't gone away from cannibalism is bad. I think we've gone more towards yeah. the hard probably shouldn't do this yeah. unless it's like survival. Yeah, it's true, yeah, and yeah, the it just goes to show that the whole theory of cannibalism is just a cultural thing, really. Like it's just different depending on where you live because. There's this video I found. I have all these links and stuff that I yeah. can send you if you want to do, like, pod notes yeah. and all that. I, I cite my sources, I hardcore. This, I'm a yeah, nerd. I do, did the same thing. I found this video of this guy who's going to somewhere where they have cannibals, and he was so visibly uncomfortable the entire time. And there was this guy trying to just feed him human flesh and have him drink alcohol out of a skull, and he was just so uncomfortable and it was oh is it in asia so is it in asia i don't think so it's like i i really have no idea where it would be 
it was just this guy from CNN, I think it was, just sitting around a fire with some guy offering him pieces of, like, jaw meat from a, a necklace that he had out of human face bones. It, I know there's some islands in in the South Pacific and <laughs> around Asia, and it's really, yeah, again, where it depends where you are. That, mm-hmm. But, I mean, drinking a drinking alcohol of the skull of your enemy sounds kind of metal. Right? I know. And he just brought straight up alcohol. I think it was like tequila or something. And just poured an entire bottle of tequila into the skull. And he just like took this teeny tiny little sip. And the other guy, like the dude that was just sitting next to the fire trying to get him to eat jaw meat and stuff, was like blessing it and then like sharing it with his friends and stuff and just taking these huge gulps out of it. I'm like, that's super So the the natives are just like, yeah, this is our normal. Exactly. Right. And then the reporter guy got so uncomfortable and they knew it. Like they noticed mm-hmm. that the guy just starts throwing something at him. I couldn't tell if it was poop or pee or what, but it was blurred and he was naked and he was throwing something and he just ran away. <laughs> the reporter just ran away. And it was just so funny to see a video of how uncomfortable we are as a culture mm-hmm. with other cultures that do things that we just do mm-hmm. not do. So... It's a very good video evidence of that. <laughs> Cannibalism is not the only bit of weird science that I'm going to talk about, but there are a few other things I want to cover. So, like I said, I'm going to do cannibalism, body garden, and the sexually transmitted diseases. I, like, wrote this. <laughs> I wrote this like a script. No, you're fine. <laughs> I just, I did, uh, and then I said, are you ready? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm way ready. <laughs> Hey, first up on our roster is cannibalism. When you think of cannibalism, you might picture some tribes, men and women dancing around a large bonfire over which they have an unlucky soul trapped to a rotating spit. Hang on. Is that just me? Either way, it's extremely taboo for us to talk about in Western cultures, so that's what I'm going to do because I'm edgy like that. <laughs> According to... <laughs> We're so edgy like Robinson Crusoe. It's true. (laughs) According to an article I found on the National Geographic website, human flesh isn't a sufficient source of protein or nutrition. So why bother eating us at all? (laughs) Turns out it's most likely due to rituals and ceremonies. Back when Ugg met Grug, there was no formal (laughs) funeral service, (laughs) which including spending thousands of dollars on fancy boxes that you bury in the ground. Back then, all Ugg had to do to remember his friend was eat him? It might sound odd, but you know that feeling where you know and love someone so much, you just want them to be an integral part of who you are? Well, take that one step further and you get the whole idea with cannibalism. (laughs) I'm just picturing that girl who got arrested for, like, texting a guy she went on one, like, Tinder date with, like, a hundred thousand times. She seems like that person who just would be like, you're just, I love you so much, I'm just gonna eat you. And you're just like, yep. Well, it's not. (laughs) In another article I found on IFL Science, one of my favorite guilty pleasure websites, I learned that there was once a doctor, Michael Alpers, who, after finding out about a condition called the Laughing Death, went on a trip to Papua New Guinea to see what it was all about. There, the tribe's people ate their family members out of, quote, love as well as gastronomic appreciation, end quote, according to Alpers' academic text. The people of the Four tribe, people who live deep in the mountains and practice regular regular cannibalism of their own tribe's people, Albers discovered that 
The Laughing Death, or Kuru, so-called by the tribe, was causing about 200 people to die each year. Dubbed the Laughing Death by the dumb media, this condition, quote, started with tremors and an impaired ability to walk. Sufferers go on to develop a total loss of bodily function, depression, and often emotional instability, which sometimes exhibits itself as hysterical laughter. End quote. The four thought it would be, thought it... The four thought it to be a curse, but Alpers was determined to help crack the case. It wasn't a bacteria, a fungus, or a virus, and it was only affecting women and children. Coincidentally, in this tribe, women and children were the ones eating the brains of the victim rather than the flesh that the men were eating. Alpers saw a connection and determined it was something called a prion. Prions, uh, quote, prions are essentially normal proteins that become twisted and turn to the dark side. These infectious agents lose their function and acquire the ability to turn other normal proteins into prions to, therefore becoming infectious, end quote. A more commonly known prion you might have heard of is mad cow disease, caused by cows eating the offal, or entrails and internal organs, and brain tissue of their dead brethren. Turns out Kuru was the human equivalent of this disease. The article concluded with this sentence, quote, A study published in Nature 2015 found that the four people who regularly ate brains had developed a resistance to prion diseases, a discovery that is still helping scientists understand degenerative brain diseases such as mad cow disease, Kreutzfeldt-Jacob's disease, Jacob disease, and some cases of dementia, end quote. So naturally, I followed the hyperlink that was in that quote to my next resource. However, that turned out to be a very wordy academic paper that I was not <laughs> confident enough to understand. So I'm just going to stick with the summary that that website gave. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've heard on. that one because they were trying to figure out what was going on because like certain members of the population just kept getting ill and they're like, and it continues yeah. the cycle because then they would eat them. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. keep continuing and going in the cycle, and they're like, what is happening? And so they that's yeah. a case when you're like, I'm not mad that you went in there. Because you're like, you're not trying to change. <laughs> like, the, they weren't trying to change the ritual. They were trying to figure out what right. part of it was making them sick. And exactly. as soon as you figure out it's the yeah. brains, you're just like, okay, well, just don't eat the brains. Right. Yeah. Everything mm-hmm. else is fine. Just don't eat the brain part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the more you know, guys, don't eat brains. Yes, do not eat brains. Well, I guess brains. human brains. And, human uh, brains. We should preface. Uh, is that is there a definite is there a difference between human brains and other brains? Like, would it give you the same kind of thing? Because if mad cow disease is something that affects cows, and if they're eating their cow brother brains, like, would it do the same thing? You know, I think as long as it's prepared properly. And mad cow disease, it kind of starts outbreaking because go into animal feed. It's very, it's very weird. It's like oh. We'll take parts of the cow that we, like, the bones and stuff that you don't, like, entrails that we don't use in that process and grind it up for feed for chickens. And then they, like, kind of do the same for chickens back for cows. And, like, so it's just this weird feeding cycle where you're, like, if it gets into one part, it just decimates everything. And you're, that's why. Wow. If you notice, it'll be one area will have that problem. And so you can't get meat from there because of the feed has caused the cows to go bad. Doesn't affect chickens. So there's no mad chickens disease. Hmm. Random facts, I know. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, Bill Shutt is likely a name that you have never heard before, but it's a name that you're not going to forget anytime soon. 
like I said in the beginning of this set of notes, I became interested in researching weird and gross history because I once heard that someone ate human meat to scientifically define the taste. Bill Shutt is like that guy's modern, more podcast-friendly predecessor. Bill wrote a book called Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History. And on an episode of Slate's The Gist podcast, Bill talked a bit about his book and what initially piqued his interest in the topic. Cannibalism is extremely common in the animal kingdom, so it seemed a totally natural progression for Shut to graduate from vampire bats and research on them to eating human flesh himself. Naturally. You know, right, like you do. He used the word technically when describing his experience uh, eating human flesh and then went on to talk about the most modern, socially acceptable form of cannibalism. Eating placenta. Oh, oh. Yum. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't- <laughs> Aren't your salivary glands just going crazy right now? Something's going. <laughs> Something's going. Whenever you see, like, it's yep. always like celebrities and stuff. Did the yeah. Kardashian one of the Kardashians tried to eat their placenta, like put yeah. it in a smoothie, and I was just like, "Why?" <laughs> yeah, Kim Kardashian tried to do it. I didn't do research on her specifically, but I did plenty of research on people who saw her do that and then decided to do it themselves, even though it's not regulated by anything and it's pretty much deemed to be unsafe generally and not have any kind of scientific benefits or anything. But you know. Goop and probably some of those websites tell you it's okay. Mm-hmm. Like those, they told yeah. you it was okay to shove, what was that, a jade egg up your vagina? Yeah. And all the all the doctors are <laughs> like, stop doing this. Please, please stop. Yeah. Like, I just want to have, I think it's Kim from People Are Wild on and just be like, what are these oh, crazy trends? Like, Kim. just go over the crazy trends. Because, like, yeah. I just saw they, they had to put out a thing telling people not to put garlic up their vagina. Like, why? I saw that too. Like, what? Who is telling you to do this? Obviously, stuff? Like, I you put it on a necklace to keep vampires away and to keep your youth. Duh. Right. But right, don't sh- <laughs> like don't shove things in orifices that aren't supposed to go in orifices. Exactly. Oh, I don't understand people. <laughs> but yeah, people eating placentas—something else that yes, comes out of your placentas. vagina. In case you weren't what? Yeah, fun. In case stuff. you were wondering that connection. Yes. <laughs> Placenta snacks oh. get a pass because the host. <laughs> I just no, just no. <laughs> because the host doesn't have to be dead to produce the meat. However, like Bill Shutt brings up, it's technically not human flesh because it's a totally different part of the body. So that's why he used the word technically when he said he ate humans because he didn't really. He ate placenta. But do we know? Do we know? I guess, I guess not. He said that he was contacted by some woman in Texas after he like sent out a, I guess a questionnaire to be like, hey, does anyone have some human flesh that I can eat? (laughs) And she's like, yep, I got a placenta in my freezer if you want to try that. So he books tickets to go down to Texas and he went out and ate this woman's placenta. For, for, like that's (sighs) dedication. It's not fresh. (laughs) That's the first thing. Like, (laughs) yeah. Does it go, like, it's been frozen. That just changed, like, how do you prepare it? Yeah. Actually, there are specialists that know how to prepare placenta. I hate. And they freeze no, dry it. No. No, I hate so many things about that sentence. Also, who is getting these messages about, like, is there a network? Do you just have a Skywriter? Like, please send human flesh to this, like, phone number. Like, 
how do you get it out there? I'm just. I he I feel like he explained it very briefly because I was so distracted by the fact that some woman just was like, yeah, I got placenta in my freezer. Why don't you come on down to Texas and try it? That I didn't really pay attention to what he was what he was saying when he was like putting the word out there, I guess. Yeah. I'm just going to say I'm sorry to all the people from Texas who listen to this, but I'm I'm kind yeah. of not surprised. Like, there's certain places, like, there's a couple other places where they'd be, like, probably, like, Florida. Like, they'd be, like, or, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's just certain places where Texas, you... Texas, Florida, and, like, California. Like, all of California. Because it's such a chic thing to do. Yeah, Southern... It'd definitely be a Southern California. Northern California would be, like, we don't have time for this. Mm-hmm. It would just, yeah. like, there's a couple places in the world where you'd just be, like, yeah, not horribly shocked by this. <laughs> and I don't know why Texas, like, you wouldn't think Texas, but I'm, I'm okay mm-hmm. with, like, yeah... Seems kind of like a Texas, like, I'm going to do what, what I want. I'm like, okay. You store that placenta. <laughs> Could you also imagine, like, oh, on a holiday, man. they're like, oh, get something out of the freezer, and they just open up. And- <laughs> There's just a placenta. And I don't... I... I, I like how- Regrettably, I have watched a couple of videos on how they prepare it. And it is not a pleasant experience to watch those videos. It is probably one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen just to see a placenta. Like, it is just this gross purple-pink thing encased in, like, white stuff. It's so bad. It's so bad. And, like, almost every video I watched, first of all, shows you them washing it off. So, like... I don't know how long they've had this thing in their house, but they haven't washed it off, and that's all kinds of. Well, no, you gotta you gotta preserve all the goodness with the stuff, (laughs) and then you gotta marinate. (laughs) And then you know you just gotta wash off. It's like some of the things you know you just wash off right before you use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just like rinse lettuce, rinse your placenta. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just thought about a placenta salad, and then I just hate myself. Oh no, I hate myself so much. <laughs> well, in case any of you listening aren't familiar with what a placenta is exactly, it's the thing inside the uterus that forms around a baby while it's gestating and it's the literal organ that we consider the womb. And it looks like this it, what I just explained. I explained it again in my notes. It's, I'm it's, not it's, explain it's it basically again. the thing <laughs> that it's from your belly button to your mother. Yeah. So it's like a purple yeah. worm. Yeah. And it's women's bodies are magical and powerful, but don't eat your it's placenta. True, yes. No, don't. Please don't. There are no scientific studies to prove that anything good will come from it. And actually a few risks that could come from it if you do not prepare it correctly. Placentitis. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> Sorry, that was a cheap shot. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay. (laughs) Eating placenta has been deemed something healthy for a new mother to do to gain a healthy mindset, combat postpartum depression, and other things. Bullshit. However, there is no scientific reason to believe that these statements are true. As a matter of fact, there are risks involved. Remember our friends experiencing the laughing death? The disease compared to mad cow because they ate the brains and entrails of their tribes, people? How's that for coming full circle? I didn't even plan that. So you get you get that crazy disease from eating a placenta. That's probably one of the risks. I mean, I didn't find any specific things that compared the two things, but 
it only makes sense. Like the placenta would be considered an internal yeah. organ. So if that's part of the mucous membrane that you're ingesting with organs and brains, I don't see how like you could be completely immune to that kind of a disease. You know, nothing has really been associated with severe risks. There was one tiny little case that someone was like a baby got sick when the mom had like been taking placenta pills or something because you can like dehydrate it, blend it up and put it in pills. for you Why? I, <laughs> I don't know. And one of the videos that I have referenced on my thing shows you how to do it. And I don't need to know that information. But now you do. But now do. you do. I do. <laughs> I can't unknow it now. Now you can haunt other people's dreams by sharing how to make placenta pills when they don't ask. Like at Thanksgiving, <laughs> if someone's being really annoying, be like, hey, did you know you can turn placentas into pills? And just just, just start oh, like that. And God. people will be like, just yeah, just go And off. then you just keep talking <laughs> until they all leave. <laughs> and then Thanksgiving's over. <laughs> And you get all the leftovers that they were too sick to eat. More stuffing for you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So people are having professional chefs serve up their baby stack for dinner, grinding up dehydrated bits into pills, and even inviting people curious about the experience like Bill Shutt to their houses to taste it. (laughs) I'm sorry, you're a professional chef, and someone goes, I would like to hire you to cook my placenta. Yeah. How much money do you think it costs to get someone to cook your placenta? Oh, my God. It has to be hundreds of thousands of dollars because they get to call themselves a specialist, even though there aren't any kind of regulations to prove that they could be a specialist. Like, this one woman in one of the videos I found was like this. She honestly looked like that one witch woman from The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Uh, the one with the dark oh, hair. Oh, yes. Um, who plays the mistress yeah, in Doctor like Who? Mm hmm. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And she was all just professionally dressed and just was wearing gloves and was just slicing up a placenta in like the most normal way that you could possibly do it. Like you were watching a chef make a salad. This is an uncooked <laughs> sausage. Like... It's a placenta. <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry, I just ruined sausage for <laughs> everyone. <laughs> They say not to ask about how the sausage is made, and now you know why. It's a placenta. (laughs) Which is not far from the truth. It's just not human placenta, so. No, it's your your intestine. It's an intestine, or synthetic intestine. Yeah, exactly. I know how sausage is made. I'm fine with it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm still going to eat it. Is it delicious? (laughs) super gross, but. I'll eat it. Yes, yes, exactly. I've eaten eaten weirder things. (laughs) As of. In weirder things. That's not a tangent we need to go on. (laughs) We'll be here for hours. (laughs) It's going to be worse than the Ghost Adventures tangent, which has already taken up so much time. Okay, yes, placentas. (laughs) Yes, as of right now, there are no regulations about eating your placenta, so all you've got to rely on are mommy blogs. Then I have this lovely transition into my next topic, because that's that's about as much cannibalism as I can handle. Oh, do you want want more fun cannibalism facts? Because I have them. Oh, absolutely. Please, So, because I've studied the 18th century... You have Mm -hmm. the main mode of transportation was by ship. So if you're shipwrecked and you couldn't find anything, there tends to be cannibalism Mm -hmm. because hunger, people die. Or my favorite account I had to read for my thesis, their ship got disabled, which could happen. So basically, there's either no Mm -hmm. wind or your ship's broken and you're not moving and you're in the ocean. 
Oh, no. So they, like, sometimes they would just pull straws to see who you eat. Oh, my and, God. Like, it it was mentioned enough, so it had to, it has to be going on. And they act yeah. just, like, the funny thing is they're like, the the narrator would be like, and I didn't partake, but I was worried they were going to eat me. And my, <laughs> and in this story, one of the men, like, they had cooked, they cooked the body down. But someone was mm-hmm. so hungry, they ate the ri- liver raw and then just proceeds to go mad. Oh, my God. So That'll happen, So, yeah. <laughs> really, whenever people get super grossed out about it, you have to think, we've done it for survival. It's either for ritual. Right. So, we can't, we can't really judge people for doing it. Like, as mm-hmm. long as you have a good reason and the person's consenting, which, right. I mean, there is, I think, a German cannibal. Like, there, there have been people who wanted to try it. And then they, like, they right. get a willing participant my thought is mm-hmm. if someone wants to be eaten as long as right exactly no i i mean i totally agree like it's probably not something that i yeah. would do but i don't want to harsh on your mellow if that's how you want to live your life you as know? long as it's consensual and that's my thing it has to be consensual right. because right like dauber not consensual mm-hmm. yeah. not cons- you don't kill people this is a true <laughs> crime podcast but i feel like every so often we need to say don't kill people it's not good. Yeah, just a friendly <laughs> reminder. Maybe don't. <laughs> so, speaking of killing people, your next topic. <laughs> My next topic is body gardens. Ah, uh, man. Uh, oh, I have this whole thing written out. I feel like I need to share these notes somewhere because I, I don't want to read them all because it just sounds like an audio drama, but I feel like I need to make them available somewhere for people to read. This is the body garden farm type thing in South Texas at Texas State University. While we're here, why not learn about who the hell thought this was a good idea? Science. This farm has fascinated... Science, exactly. This farm and the idea of body farms in general have fascinated me since I first heard about it several years ago while I was doing research for my psych degree. Their mission is to solve cold cases and help forensic teams with research as it applies to murder victims. And they state multiple times in their videos that you want your forensic anthropologists to be as educated as possible going into court, so this farm is extremely valuable to the criminal justice system. May have helped with that whole head situation as well. <laughs> um, I'm kind of creeped out because there are two somewhat close to me. Oh yeah, there's a bunch like on the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. There's some in. There's one in Florida. I have like. Oh, I have a list right here. There's uh, University of Tennessee and Knoxville, Western Carolina University, Sam Houston State University, Southern Illinois Near University, me. Colorado Mesa University, and the University of South Florida. There are multiple ones. And the bonus of having multiple facilities is the ability to host cadavers in a score of different climates, such as mountains, deserts, forests, and in different types of soil and with different kinds of wildlife to encounter the body and stuff like that. You may be wondering whose idea this was. Well, the first body farm was established at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville in 1981, so fairly recently, by anthropologist Dr. William M. Bass. Bass is still alive today, so the invention of the facilities is still fairly new. That means that not much is known about the guy that did it, because I guess he was just like, let's just do this thing and see what happens, and then it became extremely successful. I think they I think they were uh, debating, like, how do you tell decomposition? Because if you think about the history of just 
uh, studying bodies, like, for medical, like, you have the body snatchers and all that. So they're like, okay, we've mm-hmm. learned a lot about the body from doing this, but let's see. Mm-hmm. I think it was, like, they had all these cases and they're like, let's be more scientific about it. It's kind of this mm-hmm. forensic turn we've had since the 70s, which mm-hmm. I love when people are, like, they'll yell at, like, older cases and they're like, they did this. And it's like, well, yeah. They didn't think fingerprinting was a thing. Like, fingerprinting's the oldest forensic <laughs> thing, and they were they didn't wear gloves for most of the time. So, really, why are you mad at a mm-hmm. case in, like, the 1920s that's like, we fingerprinted? I'm like, sure you did. Kind of-ish. <laughs> like, you don't have any, like... And then even recording or testing things was all manual. So, right, yeah. for them having a bunch of bodies, you're like, okay, let's make this... All this experience that people had, like, coroners, it was like, an apprenticeship so let's make it more scientific mm-hmm. and just watch right exactly i'm going to talk about a couple of uh forensic anthropologists in a little bit and talk about kind of how it evolved as a thing of study basically we've been obsessing over research of the post-mortem for as long as people have been dying and according to the wikipedia click hole that i dove down after discovering dr bass i found the father of modern anthropology ernest hooten 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 I keep wanting to say Hunton, but there's no extra N. This guy, while making strides in the world of physical anthropology, was also part of the reason racism is even Yay! a thing. Yay! Yay, racism. <laughs> we do not endorse racism also, in any way, shape, or form. No, no, no. no that was a sarcastic not. yay. No, no, no. So sarcastic. Don't fight me on this. Um, <laughs> or me. Please don't come after me. Don't at me. Um, also, I should mention, this is from wikipedia and there was a lot of information on his page so take it all with a grain of salt because i didn't have anyone to tell me whether or not this was a credible source so i used it anyway because this is a podcast (laughs) anyway a quote hooten used comparative anatomy to divide humanity up into races in hooten's case this involved describing the morphological characteristics of different quote primary races and the various, quote, subtypes in 1926. Oh, no, wait. In 1926, the American Association of Physical Anthropology and the National Research Council organized a committee on the Negro, which focused on the anatomy, focused on the anatomy of blacks. In 1927, the committee endorsed a comparison of African babies with, get this, young apes. Ten years later, the group published findings in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology to quote, prove that the Negro race is phylogenically a closer approach to the primitive man than the white race, end quote. Uh, a key part in establishing the racial stereotypes about black athleticism and black criminality of his day in terms of an anthropological framework, Hooten was one of the first to attempt to develop mathematically rigorous criteria for race typology. End quote. It's phrenology, and I hate yeah. phrenology because it's racist, it's stupid, and it just involves measuring mm-hmm. frickin' head. Yep. Bumps don't mean shit, people. Come also, on. they've <sighs> proven that Africa is the most genetically diverse continent. So, mm-hmm. suck it. <laughs> this just fills me the with rage, sorry. The later goes on to talk about how he was actually an okay guy because he was cool with the sterilization of mentally unstable people, but not that race had anything to do with it. Cool. I understand that maybe this was a side effect of the times, but I couldn't find more evidence without reading actual books I don't have money to buy and all the YouTube video guys... 
videos of this guy are in German, so I have no choice but to assume that this dude was just a white cis bro ahead of his it, time. I mean, it's it's just the science that was happening <laughs> at the time because it was not diverse, um, mm-hmm. and you had to have some money to be doing it, so... It's just really frustrating because this was the narrative shoved into everyone's faces. Yep. And this, I'm going to have to do, there's several cases of involuntary sterilization of a population. And oh, most of them are shockingly the U.S. government. Fun fact, <laughs> not just in our country. No, not just in our country. Oh, God. Um, so, yeah, I have feelings, a lot of them, on yeah. this. And poor Augie's just seeing me like, I'm just like, so (laughs) mm. very tense, very riled up. And I apologize, but it's about to get better because we're going to meet a guy who actually did something about Mm -hmm. forensic anthropology without being a racist. Yeah. You know, once we get away from eugenics and phrenology, it gets better. (laughs) And then in case you guys really want to see how that happens. Look up the history of National Geographic if you really want that giant oh, cup boy. of rage, which if you want, <laughs> we have on t-shirts. So you can look up your cup of rage while wearing a cup of rage. It's fine. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's not fine. <laughs> it's never fine, but I like to at least give a false sense of hope. <laughs> the house is on fire, but it's fine. Just sitting here with my tea. Oh, God. While Houdin was the father of looking at bones, he wasn't the one to popularize the field. We owe that to a Mr. Wilton Krogman. Great name. His parents, I know, right? His parents were both uneducated and wanted him to live a better life, so he did. He came in first out of over 400 people on a standardized test to gain acceptance into the University of Chicago. From there, he earned his doctorate and landed a position as an anthropology lecturer. In 1929, Krogman wrote an article in the FBI newsletter entitled, quote, A Guide to the Identification of Human Skeletal Material, end quote. And this was basically the starting point for modern-day anthropology and even earned Krogman the nickname The Bone Doctor, which would have severe consequences these days, but was really cool back then. Well, yeah, and he went to the University of Chicago, which was the set epicenter of the growth of anthropology where all the big names came mm-hmm. out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were so many names listed on his Wikipedia page of people that helped him get to, you know, where he is now. Which I'm assuming if it's 1929, it's dead. Well, <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's dead now. <laughs> but he did a lot of really cool things for forensic anthropology. So the apparent... The anthropology that we know and love today, though, wasn't made popular until the 1940s. And here's a quote from the Wikipedia page for forensic anthropology to sum it all up. Quote, during the 1940s, Krogman was the first anthropologist that, (laughs) that is a word that I know, but I didn't read it correctly. (laughs) During, (laughs) During the 1940s, Krogman was the first anthropologist to actively publicize anthropologists' potential forensic value, going as far as placing advertisements in the FBI law enforcement bulletin, informing agencies of the ability to assist the identification of skeletal remains, and so on and so forth. This period saw the first official use of anthropologists by federal agencies, including the FBI. During the 1950s, the U.S. Army Quartermaster Corps employed forensic anthropologists in the identification of war casualties during the Korean War. It was at this time that forensic anthropology officially began. 
the sudden influx of available skeletons for anthropologists to study, whose identities were eventually confirmed, allowed for the creation of more accurate formulas for the identification of sex, age, and stature based solely on skeletal characteristics. These formulas developed in the 1940s and redefined by war are still in use by modern forensic anthropologists. <coughs> this is a little bit long. Oh, you're fine. Sorry. The professionalization of the field soon began after began soon after. During the 1950s and 60s, this move coincided with the replacement of coroners with medical examiners in many locations around the country. It was during this time that the field of forensic anthropology gained recognition as a separate field with the American Academy of Forensic Science Sciences, and the first forensic anthropology research facility and body farm was opened by William M. Bass. Public attention and interest in forensic anthropology began to increase around this time as forensic anthropologists started working on more high-profile cases. One of the major cases of the era involved anthropologist Charles Murbs, who helped identify the victims murdered by Ed Gain, end quote. And Ed Gain is my favorite serial killer, so that was pretty cool that they came full circle <laughs> like that. Yeah. Do you know why it's so <laughs> significant that you switch over from, um, like, coroners to pathologists or... Yeah, I wanted to dig into that a little bit, but I have so much information that I just didn't include yeah. it. But tell me, so please. So <laughs> if you don't, like, county coroners can be um, mm -hmm. either appointed or they're elected, and so they tend to be funeral home owners, so more oh, morticians. And they just, like, mm -hmm. yes, they see a lot, but they also don't have that always have that training so like if they don't if they live in an area where they can't go out and get training you, you're kind of right. left with like they can basically determine if it's an accident or not but they can't go really in depth always and i mean pathologists the amount of schooling you have to go through and all of that i had a biology teacher in high school who was a pathologist oh wow yeah she still does um bone slides for cleveland clinic which is oh, insane cool. and she took us to the that's she so took cool. us to the cuyahoga county morgue as a field trip i'm not kidding you we went as a field trip that's so cool i'm like super jealous actually i'm obsessed with um the ask a mortician YouTube oh, channel yeah. and the death in the afternoon podcast mm -hmm. i love caitlin and i love everything that she does and i just love learning stuff about death <laughs> it's so fascinating oh yeah it is <laughs> Nowadays, we have shows like Bones, NCIS, and CSI to teach us all about forensics in a watered-down, likely inaccurate, probably doing more harm than good kind of way. So we have a skewed perception of it. Really, it was a science invented out of necessity to make sure the bones of those that we lost were properly recorded, identified, and dealt with to bring closure to their families, especially during wartime and in missing people cases. So that is the end of what I have to say about body farms, which I didn't really talk about. I kind of talked about forensic anthropology, took a little <laughs> bit of a rabbit trail there. But the um, body farms are absolutely fascinating. They just take bodies that have been usually mm -hmm. donated by the people who are dead, and they're just put in different climates. Like, I watched a couple of videos on it, and there was just bodies chilling in a field. Some bodies are buried underground. Some of them are exposed to vultures and uh, birds of prey and other kinds of wildlife. Some of them are uh, put out there with, like, cages around them so that wildlife can't get to them. And they basically exist so that people have an idea of what happens when bodies are in certain conditions so that they can help the FBI and the CSI people that are the real people uh, figure out what happened in a murder case. So 
they would have been extremely helpful in the time of the true crime case yeah. that you talked about in your last yeah, episode. Yeah, Julia, so. Martha Thomas. Yeah, in the Victorian period, it would have been great. Mm-hmm. But they weren't yeah. even... That would have been very helpful. They, but it's because of cases like that that this is so ne- necessary. And I'm sure that it's helped bring so much closure to people. I think it's helped not just bring closure, but sped up the process of identifying. Like when you go to a scene, mm-hmm. okay, we know this is what this is. And mm-hmm. looking at a scene, they it's easier for them to tell what's happened. So where before they right. could have been like, oh, this is clear an accident. But then they'll look and be like, oh, no, like based on this, this is this is. Like, it's not mm-hmm. natural for this and da, 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 and how long they've been there. And it makes them so right. much more accurate so they don't have to – the turnaround's quicker so the co- it helps the cops, help the cops catch people faster. And mm-hmm. Yeah, body farms mm-hmm. are just fascinating. And Yeah. Well, unless you have any other musings about forensic anthropology and body farms, we can move on to STDs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, but I have some musings about the, what's coming up. Oh, I'm so excited. This was probably the more fun one to research, mostly because it didn't really involve a lot of dead people. I mean, it, it did involve dead people, but they were, they were dead afterwards. It's whatever. (laughs) Um, (laughs) it resulted in their death, but it's fine. (laughs) So this really doesn't have anything to do with either cannibalism or body farms, but we're just going to talk about STI or STDs. Uh, and how they were treated in the 19th and 18th centuries. For some context, the time period that I'm going to be talking about are the years 1701 to 1900, and maybe a little bit after 1900, because the Industrial Revolution really helped this whole process get kind of fixed. That is a huge gap of time, and we were just so widely uneducated about proper medical treatment, so this is going to be a wild ride. And strap in. Oh, I'm I, I'm ready. I've read up. I've told you this. I've read on some of this, and I'm like, I'm I'm oh, ready. Yeah. yeah, this is your cup of tea. Oh, <laughs> uh, I read this. For, I read this for school. I was given a book, and they were like, "Okay, read this book and this book, and we're gonna talk about." It. And I was just like reading this. I was like, "Say what now?" And then I freaked out all my <laughs> friends who were studying microbiology. History is absolutely fascinating to me, but it was probably one of my worst topics, just because. I don't know. I couldn't keep like the years and the wars and all this stuff straight. So just that simple fact kind of made it really boring for me. So I never really dove into it like I wanted to. But doing research like this is a different story because you're doing it so like on such a specific mm-hmm. topic and you're you're covering something that's really interesting. So I got most of my information from Wikipedia. So please correct me if anything I'm about to say is wrong, because I'm going to give like a brief summary of what was going on in the 18th and 19th centuries. So some notable things to remember as I talk about these time periods. In the 18th century, slavery was still a thing and was happening, and no one thought there was anything wrong uh, with it. Basically, no one was happy with This with is that. when you get, uh, you're starting to get the abolitionist movement kicking off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the 18th century, it was still happening. In the 19th mm-hmm. century, it was abolished. <laughs> but it was kind of like a movement-type yeah. deal going on in there. Um, basically, no one was happy with their current political leaders, and wars such as the French Revolution broke out like hives across the world. And the Industrial Revolution was just starting to gain traction. See what I did there? <laughs> yeah, I, I saw it. <laughs> like a train. <laughs> 
<laughs> there you go. The 19th century, at least on Wikipedia, is basically comprised of the rise and fall of multiple kingdoms and empires, likely a result of all of the wars and stuff. Slavery was abolished, the second industrial revolution made things a lot easier for everyone, and we started making money and traveling. And British and Russia were basically in control of everyone. Is that about right? And France. And France. Okay. Thank you for not failing me, Wikipedia. <laughs> the Spanish Empire, yeah, the Spanish Empire dies at the mid-18th century. Real hard. Real, real hard. Mm. <laughs> Now that we have that out of the way, we can talk about syphilis. <laughs> syphilis was, was the most promising, promising, prominent STD of the time. Nearly everyone who's anyone had it, and if you weren't dying in the streets from it, you were basically a loser. <laughs> According to the Journal of Military Veterans Health, quote, Although it didn't have the horrendous mortality of the bubonic plague, its symptoms were painful and repulsive. The appearance of genital sores, followed by the foul abscesses and ulcers over the rest of the body and severe pains. The remedies were few and hardly efficacious. The mercury inductions, which is rubbing stuff onto your skin, and suffumigations, which is burning something and inhaling the smoke, that people endured were painful and many patients died of mercury poisoning. End quote. Initially, syphilis was thought to have been brought over by Columbus and his men from the New World. But throughout time, it was affecting those in the time period. No, it came over It, it came over with Columbus. Yeah, but some people thought that it came over with Columbus. And then other people were like, no, it didn't. And I don't remember how I was supposed to write that. I apparently didn't write it It, it was the, the native uh, islanders and... Central and South Americans gift to Europeans. Ah, yes. Okay. So that then that I that found that in AP US history, junior year oh in high school, God. we found out syphilis was a <laughs> gift that told told the Europeans to go fuck off. Thanks. I hate it. <laughs> it's syphilis. Thanks. <laughs> so I found an old documentary that I watched on the subject of syphilis, and it was from the 1950s. Oh. Dear Lordy. Yeah, it was fun. Basically, they were just talking about syphilis, and then they were talking about, like, how to treat it. So I really only watched the first half when they were talking about it, rather than just going to the Wikipedia page. Because I'm pretty sure I would have gotten the same information either way, but this one was a video, and it was narrated by a pleasant British man. (laughs) So. (laughs) When you get syphilis, you need to go see your physician. He will provide you with the treatment and some tablets. I'm assuming that's what it was. Yeah, that's essentially, yeah, what it was. <laughs> Everyone called the disease some form of their enemy, such as the Spanish pox or the French disease. And fed up with all the pox, leaders and kings ordered their wise men and astrologers, because they were trusted men of the time, to figure out what it was. A poem was eventually composed after the research was done, featuring a young shepherd boy named Syphilis. They found out it was being transferred by sexual content, so naturally they wrote the poem starring a young boy named Syphilis. They published it widely, and then that's basically how everybody found out about it and started to call it Syphilis. Well, do you know why, like, it was... So you said it was by their enemies, but it was it was first... Uh, it was mainly known as the French disease because the French be fighting everybody. <laughs> Legitimately, the French. Yeah, no, I. They love yeah. fighting. They love fucking and fighting. It's mm-hmm. the French. 
But so the Spanish came back and they all their 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 guys got it. They spread it to their camp fo- followers who were then then they were fighting the French and the, the Italians and it just spread. But I think it just oh ended God. up being the French disease because they were fighting everyone. Uh, yeah, I can believe so that. So it's like a 10-year period when it's a Spanish yeah. disease and then it just flips and you're just like, <laughs> I see what you did there. I see what you did there. You're like, those French, they fighting everybody. They're trying to take over Rome. Mm-hmm. They're trying to take over Spain. Mm-hmm. They're trying to take over <laughs> the Holy Roman Empire, which is neither Holy Roman nor Empire, but go for it. <laughs> you know, you would think just basic human decency, you're not just going to have sex with people covered in rashes and boils, you know? Like, how horny do you need to be to to have sex with people like that? And in wartime, too, I understand it's stressful, but for goodness sakes, um, holy you moly. You don't see women. The only women they had were camp oh, followers, yeah. and it's a bunch of dudes. Yeah. Just a bunch of dudes. <laughs> That's all armies are. No homo. Just a bunch of dudes. No homo, but homo. <laughs> no, that did happen. They were kind of more of okay with that, depending. Um, but yeah, you just have a bunch of guys all together, and you get drunk, and what do drunk guys want to do? Fuck. Yeah. And so you just get this cycle, and they share... Like, camp followers would go between armies, so... Or if you lost, you know, they're going to go where there's work. And women yeah. don't show symptoms as prominently, I guess, as men. Yeah, I guess so. So. Gross. <laughs> Boys are gross. It's so gr- <laughs> it's so disgusting when you think about it, especially because it's so dirty on top of it. Yeah. So I always love when you watch yeah. movie period pieces and everyone's so clean and you're just like, mm-hmm. no, nope. this is where Monty <laughs> Python got it right. They're like, he's not covered in shit. Rolling around in the dirt. It's like, that's how he's a king. He's not covered in shit. Uh-huh. Exactly. And then and then it all gets worse once the 19th century rolls around because everybody's covering up all of that garbage with powder and wigs Lead and paint. fancy layers and clothes and you just know that it's all festering and musty and nasty under there because of everything that was happening the century before. Also, you're covering up with lead. So you're covering your face with lead paint. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Uh toilets aren't prominent. Fun fact, Versailles mm-hmm. has no toilets in it at all. Really? That's it. They would just go in the like the um stairwells. The chamber pots. Oh my god, really? <laughs> oh yeah, no. Wow. Disgusting. Also, how do you pee in those giant dresses? Is my question always. Mm-hmm. But so and then you have all the layers, so you're sweaty, it's just moist. Diseases like ugh. how anyone lived survived. Yeah, I don't ugh. Also our favorite everyone's oh. favorite founding father had syphilis. Oh yeah. Old Ben. Yes. Good old Ben. He liked those French whores. <laughs> So gross. Oh, the day I found that out, it just ruined kites for me. Kites, <laughs> lightning rods, glasses, keys, like, so many things. Oh, can't even unlock my house anymore. I just love that he got the reason why they had to uh, follow him so closely at the Constitutional Convention is because he had um, syphilitic dementia. So he's he oh was, my he was that far gone. Like, he was still brilliant, but they were just like, he has no filter because his whole brain is being eaten by syphilis. Oh, my God. The more you know. Fun fact. <laughs> I, yeah. They're fun facts. They're, they're not always fun, but they are facts. It's true. They might haunt your dreams. Haunting facts. You don't want them, but they come. Oh, my God. So, in this documentary I yes. watched... They explore the different treatments, which is what we're all here for. Mercury, baths, tea made with bark from trees, etc. Patients seem to get better, but no one knew that it was just the initial rash that goes away. They didn't know it could affect the brain either. Years later. 
And by the time our two favorite centuries rolled around, it was something people actively made fun of in theater productions. Everyone still had it, and they were just too busy powdering their faces and wearing too many layers of clothes to realize it. For a while, syphilis was treated by rounding up the afflicted women in town and carting them off somewhere else. You know, because women are the only ones that got it. <laughs> and it definitely wasn't spent by, is spread by French soldiers. Or any soldiers or men. Exactly. Plunging their sword <laughs> into many things. Oh, no. <laughs> if your sword is infected, take care of it. <laughs> Do not plunge it into other things. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, and of course, because this always happens when terrible things happen, preachers and spiritual leaders told their congregations that syphilis was a curse from God because they were sinful, and the wages for sin are death. And I tried to look this up, but I kind of, I don't know, can you have a headcanon for, like, historical facts? Because <laughs> I have this idea in my head that this is where abstinence only education started because they were just like everyone's got syphilis don't have sex and then everyone was just like well this is what our ancestors did so we should do it too <laughs> it was always <laughs> abstinence only for women oh especially middle and upper class women but mm -hmm. men it was kind of like yeah you shouldn't do it but definitely during this, like, as, as close as you get to Victoria's reign, you definitely see that clamping down. They're like, let's just repress this all. Let's repress it all. <laughs> Tamp it down. We won't think about syphilis, but we're going to slut shame everyone. <laughs> By everyone, I mean specifically oh lower class women. Yes. Ship them off. Send them to jail. It's fine. Probably sent them to Australia. The let's not lie. Let's not lie. <laughs> Probably sent them to Australia. Most likely. It was expensive, but it was worth it to get those syphilitic whores out of our country. Why we still have it is a mystery, but they're gone, so what's Also, there was overpopulation in England, <laughs> so they're like, be gone! Also be gone, that. sick people! Exactly. Sick poor people! And that's how all the women in Australia came to be such badasses. They survived syphilis, probably. <laughs> exactly. So, everybody lost hope to the point where medical, quote, professionals said it was so ingrained in your immune system, even your ghost would have syphilis when you died. Everyone was so ashamed to talk about it, so they didn't know that the medical treatments everyone was selling them were quackery, especially since the initial rash went away after some time. They assumed that the terrible medicine that they were using was actually working, and that just was very bad. So, like I said, I only watched half of this documentary because the only, the other half was like this weirdly acted live action something or other from the 50s where they were talking about miracle cures for it, which kind of seemed like the same quackery they were talking about, but whatever. So, yeah, what I'm trying to discuss here is the gross, the questionable treatments and such. And syphilis was the most prominent, but not the only STD back then, there was also quite a lot of gonorrhea and who knows what else, probably stuff that they had back then that we don't even have now because everyone was so gross. Uh, doctors were basically up to their eyeballs in STD cases because apparently no one could keep their hands off each other, even though everyone was covered in pox and rashes. So I found an article from Bustle that details bizarre medical remedies for STDs yes. starting as far back as the Egyptians. And here are are some of my favorites besides the classic mercury salve and exorcism <laughs> yeah, are you I, ready i'm strapped in <laughs> this I'm is 
much. I have been waiting to go over these since we started recording. I'm so excited. So the first one is powdered cow horn, which is something that the Egyptians used to soothe urethral infections and possibly were linked to STDs. Uh, there were a couple other things that they used to use, uh, including like straw and uh, I think sand, mm-hmm. like something like that. And uh, and powdered cow horn. You, you know do. when your dick's burning. Uh, the, some. Do you mm-hmm. drink it? Like that's the question. Do you drink it or do you have to rub it in? I think you have to rub <laughs> it in. And and the graphic that they showed was like a hieroglyph mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it picture thing of someone else rubbing it on someone else's genitals. So you have to have a buddy, and they have to grab the powdered cow horn and just rub it all over your junk. That's a good friendship right there. <laughs> You're just like, I know. Listen. My dick's burning. I need you to do me a favor. <laughs> the Greeks believed that lifting weights would help. I don't think that works. Their bodies, <laughs> they thought that bodies were weak if they contracted STDs. So they encouraged patients to carry around lead weights to strengthen their body. Because, you know... It's not enough to be dying from an incurable disease back then. You gotta toss in some cancer rocks and force someone to exercise too. I'm just and as if I'm just picturing Go ahead. because they think you're weak, you have to like strengthen your dick so that weights are under uh-huh. dick. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's like on your dick, it's on your wrists and stuff, and you're like skin and bones, so you're just literally standing there with just weights all over just you. Just a heavy dick. I don't understand how Yeah. <laughs> And you can't wear pants because you got a dick weight. Like it's. <laughs> well, no, you're wearing a toga, so I guess like, oh, God. Oh, that's a good point. Wait, you're you right. Holding, you're right. You can like, hide it. There's gonna be logistics now. I'm not gonna think about it too hard. And as if this one wasn't bad enough, later on in the article they mentioned that in medieval Europe they would soak pieces of cloth in a liquid that contained lead and cover the patient with them, and they would call these sweating cloths. I don't. It didn't say what the benefit was, and the link that they provided didn't work. So I can only imagine that sweating cloths was some kind of reference to, like, sweating out your impurities. Like, I don't know what this was part of, but they really like to use lead You'll back sweat then. in the lead, and then you'll die, so you're cure. So the next one on the list is hitting your genitals with a book. You've heard the term the clap, right? Uh, <laughs> yes, my university <laughs> hockey team... Every time there was a cheer about the other school's t- girls saying they had the clap. Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> our hockey cheer, our hockey wow. cheers were horrible and I love them. Yeah, that sounds there great. Was, there's one that's legitimately just break his legs, break his goddamn legs. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, so there's a possibility that this, uh, gonorrhea STD type deal thing got its nickname because people somewhere somehow decided that it would be a good idea to get the pus that forms in your genitalia caused by gonorrhea out by smacking your junk with a book. There's really not much more I can say, but that's what they did. My question is, specific book or just any book? You know, I don't know, but I feel like a heavier book, like maybe Lord of the Rings or something, would really work. The Bible? Yeah. What? You have this! The power of Christ compels you. You gotta get the demons out of your genitals. A two for one clapping and exorcism. You're welcome. So the nickname could have been from that or from, 
I, you know, I've never had gonorrhea, so I can't say for sure whether or not this is actually true, but apparently there's a clapping noise that happens when you pee, so that's another reason it may have gotten the nickname. I don't know. I don't really want to know, but that's what this website told me. So it's either books or whatever you want to call that. I'm sorry. <laughs> what? There was no more information presented on the article that I found that on that I could see, at least, that talked about that at all. So How terrifying yeah. is that? I know. <laughs> like, does it sound like just, like, your engine trying to start? Like, it's, like, little spurts of pee? Like, I don't... Okay, well, then I have something that's going to make you laugh, and it's not terrifying. And it's the image that okay. I sent you on uh, Twitter. So this is the weirdest one. Well, maybe not the weirdest one. It's just really weird. And it comes with an, a graphic. And I'm going to probably maybe post this on Instagram. I don't know if it's going to get flagged Oh, or I'm going to post this. Um, okay, there you go. You're welcome, <laughs> Internet. some blurs, like, around the... <laughs> uh, this is called Fumigation. And if you don't care enough to go look at our Instagrams, which you will, which which you should, you should look at both of ours and mm -hmm. follow us because we're awesome. It's a dude. He's sitting in a box. Is it a dude? It's a person. I'm pretty sure it's a dude. He's sitting in I'm a box. I'm gonna go with man. He's got like a shower cap on. His head is through a hole in the top of the box, and we can see inside the box. He's sitting, and there's like a thing dug in the ground that's uh, burning, and then there's like a cap thing over the burning thing and there's steam coming out touching his butt and he's naked uh so i'm assuming they're trying to fumigate all the stds out of this dude's genitalia he's doing a naked sauna with would, something yeah something it, like it's that a, it's yeah. a personal naked std sauna <laughs> plus a hat that looks like a fun hat i'm not gonna lie that's a pretty fun hat yeah it kind of looks like a mountain with like a little city around the outside it looks like it, it's like yeah. a. It looks like a really sad cool. German hat, you know, the pointy ones. <laughs> like it just got sad and kind of crumpled in on itself. Minus the, <laughs> minus the spike, like the World War One German hats, minus the spike that just is like, meh. Exactly. Yep. This thing works so badly, even your hat's gonna get an STD. <laughs> yes. You know, you want to know what they would fumigate up into people's genitals? I'm gonna assume lead. <clears throat> oh yes, heavy gold, heavy gold. <laughs> Heavy metals like silver and gold, arsenic, lead, silver nitrate, antimony, and something called Indonesia pepper cubebs. I don't know what that, like, last word means, uh, but it's basically, like, these peppers from Indonesia. That seems like it would burn. So, right. And I feel like that might have been the beginning of if it burns, then it's working. But this didn't work. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just liking all the things that can kill you and then valuable metals like silver and gold. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, I don't understand why that was. The f and it's funny that they include arsenic in this, too, because that was later found out to be part of a cure for syphilis in that documentary that I watched. So I don't know how true that is, but they were talking about how some guy mixed arsenic with something and injected it into a rabbit that had syphilis and it helped cure it and all that jazz. And then penicillin came around. So it's funny that they included arsenic in there because that kind of works. But then when you mix it with silver, gold and uh, peppers and stuff, yeah. it's probably not going to work. Sounds like a really bad stew. <laughs> we're just gonna mix this all together i'm sure it's like i'm sure it's not chemically necessary to have all those together and it might be a little volatile 
but that's the last uh, treatment that I have, and that's all the research that I was able to do. So yeah, uh, STDs in the in the early centuries and such. It's fun times. So do you want to tell people where they can find you, Augie? <laughs> sure. <laughs> now that you've thoroughly traumatized everyone with like cannibalism, oh yes, and bodies, yes, and then just ripe genitals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, pus-filled genitals. Oh my god. All right. I have two blogs where I post my short stories and then another blog where I post my reviews of bad horror movies. I don't typically talk about genitals or cannibalism, but it's stuff I'm interested in, so I'm open to doing it again. We'll see what happens. I write horror stories and I review horror movies that are really bad. And I also interview indie artists every once in a while. Uh, just because I like sharing the good word of indie artists and such. Uh, so yeah, and I host a podcast where I combine all of it so that if you don't want to read it, you can hear it. And, uh, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. And also shortly, I'll maybe posting on YouTube soon, but that's a while off because I have almost a hundred episodes to upload there. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> maybe. It's a lot. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much where you can find me. For any information about me, you can go to augiepeterson.wordpress.com. That is literally where everything is. And if you follow me on Twitter, Facebook, whatever, my link is everywhere. So search my name mm-hmm. and you'll find me. And yeah, go, definitely go check out all Augie's stuff. I love the horror story ones because I love bad movies, but that's just me. And who knows? We might be starting a Ghost Adventures podcast <laughs> for probably. <laughs> This is going to be a Patreon part because we probably spent 30 minutes just discussing Ghost Adventures that is not going to be in this episode. Yeah. (laughs) And it was was great. great. Yeah. So bye. (laughs) Bye. Hey guys, it's Tammy Merhep Chavez. And Bryce Mitchell Williams. We are the hosts of Hollyweird Paranormal. It's a podcast about Hollywood true crime and the paranormal based out of Los Angeles, California. We spike this Hollywood cocktail with stories of true crime and its paranormal aftermath, along with dirty Hollywood scandals and secrets that make up this weird city of Hollywood and its surrounding areas that make up this crazy state of California. Catch our episodes every Sunday on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Blueberry, and Stitcher. Life is too short to be normal. Stay weird with Holly Weird Paranormal. All right, but you mentioned a cocktail and now it's all I'm craving. Right, let's end this promo and get one. Yes. <sighs> hey folks, how's it going? My name is Augie and I host a podcast called The Short Stories of Augie Peterson. Once upon a time, I had two blogs. Then one day I started listening to podcasts. They seemed like a lot of fun and would combine the thing I was always afraid to share with the world, my writing, with the thing I had no choice but to share, my theater background. So I decided to combine them into a podcast for those millennials that don't have time to read two blogs. I read the original short horror stories I write every other Tuesday and review really terrible horror movies from Netflix, Redbox, Amazon Prime, and even the dollar store with massive amounts of snark every other Thursday. On the first Saturday of each month, I tell my listeners about five new indie artists that I have interviewed that I think they should know about. So if you like terrible horror movies, learning about new artists, really good horror stories, and total nerds, this is the podcast for you. Check out the short stories of Augie Peterson wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, go to augiepeterson.wordpress.com. Toodaloo! 
Hey guys, July 13th is coming up soon. And if you want to meet me and a bunch of my podcasting friends, about 80 of them, come down to the True Crime Podcast Festival at the Marriott downtown, right on the Magnificent Mile, you know, right by the Bean in that beautiful park. So I'm excited to see some of my favorites. All Crime, No Cattle, Ignorance Was Bliss, Nature versus Narcissism, Paranormal Chicks, The Getting Off Podcast, Dark Routine. All of your indie favorites are going to be there, as well as a lot of the big names. This is a full day event. And the sooner you sign up, the cheaper it's going to be. So make sure you sign up soon. And there's going to be meet and greets. I'll be there. Um, I have ordered some things. So if you're there, you might get some exclusive goodies. And, you know, there's some amazing events going on. Some panels like, uh, you know, getting off and LA Not So Confidential are doing a live episode as part of this, there's also amazing panel with uh, Court Junkie, Misconduct, and Pretend Radio. So really, why haven't you bought your tickets yet? I already have, and I hope to see you there. Cults of Domesticity, we're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word, or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at Domestic Podcasts, and our Instagram is at the Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, as well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcast at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free.